at Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went through all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, and those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, how we desperately need your presence in this time. We hunger for your word. We desire it more than gold. Grant it to us, Heavenly Father. Teach us your ways. Illumine this text by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. And for your glory, by the power of Christ's name, amen. In this text, I would have us see three things, and you know it is the preacher's prerogative to come up with goofy alliteration, and so this is my first time doing double alliteration, and you can judge how good it is. It's going to be the messianic message, that's our first section, then the ministry manpower, and then missional miracles. It's pretty good, right? Uh, for context, we know last time when we did this, this is uh, after Christ Jesus had the, his baptism and the Holy Spirit blessed him. The heavens were rent and God said, this is my son. Then he went out and was tested. He did battle with Satan and was shown to be true. And so here he is now beginning his ministry. We look in the first section, verses 12 through 17. We see uh, that John has been arrested. This is John the Baptist. Now, you might have this situation happen to you when you see the news of a famous Christian who has passed on when R.C. Sproul passed away. I thought, oh, what a loss to the church. And, you know, you get this sort of feeling of panic. Who's going to step up? Who's going to fill in the gap? What's going on? 
And yet, of course, we know this is somewhat sinful in its outlook when we're fearful because a mortal has left. We can, of course, be thankful for his life and, and aspire to have people replace and step up. But is God's kingdom in danger because a servant of his has been ushered off the scene? Here, John the Baptist, the one who's heralding the king, he has now been arrested. He's removed. It's time to panic, right? No. Who is he ushering? He's ushering in the chosen one, the Messiah, God himself. And so we ought not. We, we Presbyterians ought to be the last ones to be full of panic when something like this happens. God is in the work. God is moving We ought to trust his sovereign hand. John the Baptist is gone. He's ushered off the scene. We'll hear more about him later in this book. But uh, what was his whole purpose? His whole purpose was to point to Christ and then be removed. And you know his quote, he must increase, I must decrease. That's his whole purpose. What a glorious Purpose Would that that were our purpose every day of our lives, pointing to Christ, forget about me. You know, it's often asked, what do you want to be remembered by or what do you want to be on your epitaph or on your tombstone? And it's okay to think of such things, but but it should be, I want people to think of Christ when they think of my name. I don't, your legacy should be pointing towards Christ. That should be what we are concerned with, not building our own heritage, our own kingdom. Now, just as an aside, why was John the Baptist arrested? Why was he removed? He's preaching the gospel. He's, he's pointing the way to Christ. He shouldn't be removed from the scene. And, of course, you know, he was speaking out against public immorality, against sin that the uh, king was doing. It is still the way today when Christians speak against public immorality, against the sin that they will be opposed. Here he is arrested And eventually will lose his head. I wonder how we react when we see that there are consequences for speaking up against the madness of this age. This age has an idol. It is anything to do with sex. Sexuality is its idol. And when you speak against it, no, you may not do that. Then you will have terrible oppression your way in the American world's way. Uh, certainly, we have not gotten to the point where your head will be removed. Uh, we pray it never gets to that point, but you will get vociferous reactions. You will not be treated pleasantly when you speak uh, of what God's word commands. You can lose your job, you can lose your finances, your um, uh, prominence. You know, in Canada, they, the banks stopped lending money to people who are, who are opposing. And in Finland or one of the Scandinavian countries, uh, there's illegal prosecutions against somebody who spoke against sexual immorality. Uh, it is uh, getting to the point where when you speak about the the ethics of this world, and you speak about it from a biblical worldview, you will be opposed. We know our own John Knox, who was the Presbyterian founder in Scotland. He had to flee when he spoke against the queen, the Catholic queen of Scotland. He had to flee to Geneva, and of course, that ended up being a blessing. Of course, God's hand of providence was in that. Uh, He went to Geneva and studied with Calvin and uh, did all sorts of wonderful things and learned a lot in his ministry there. Indeed, you see this language in this that it is the light has dawned. So, of course, when light dawns, 
How does the kingdom of darkness react? They are antithetical, of course. So when light is dawning, the darkness does not like it. The kingdom of darkness will oppose, of course. We see verses 13 to 16 that there is a quote. This is an Old Testament quote, Isaiah chapter 9. This is the same chapter that has, for unto us a child is born. This is Christ as he's doing all of his actions. This is prophecy fulfilled. His steps are ordained by God Almighty from eternity past. He is fulfilling these ancient prophecies. This is an amazing thing to behold. And so we come here to verse 17, this first section. What is this? This is the messianic message. What does he have to say? He speaks of repentance. You know, when a a new CEO comes to take over a company and they give their first talk to the employees or their first talk to the shareholders, they want to hear what is what's this guy's method going to be? What is his principle, his focus? What's it going to be? Or the president's inaugural address. What is this person going to be focused on in addressing? Well, What is Christ doing here at the beginning of his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark 1, 14 and 15 is the, you know, the synoptic gospels. It's the commensurate uh, passage. It, It elaborates a little more. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here in Matthew, it says, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Mark it says repent and believe. How is it that these two things are are said like this? Well, it's two sides of the same coin. Was this just an emphasis at the beginning of his ministry? Of course not. This is an emphasis all throughout his ministry. In Luke 24, verses 46 and 47, this is right after his resurrection and right before his ascension. He's telling his people at the end, and he says... Then he opened their minds to the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rose from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So this emphasis on repentance, turn to God, faith in God, is his constant emphasis from beginning to end. It's his final words. We must remind ourselves repentance is not a work. It is a gift of God. It is a grace of God. It is, um, as Robert McCurley says, how these, these focus, these work together. We believe penitently and we repent believingly. You turn from sin and embrace God in faith. It is two sides inseparable here. The Puritan Thomas Vincent put it this way. Some have truly repented of their sins, and although they may be overtaken and surprised by temptations so as to fall into the commission of the same sins which they have repented of, yet they do not lie in them, but get up again and do bitter grief, bewail them, and return again unto the Lord." That same sort of emphasis on continual repentance over and over may remind you of Luther and his 95 theses, the first of which was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Now, it is a sad state of affairs in the American church when we consider 
how well this doctrine is consistently proclaimed. Uh, if I were to ask of you who is a preacher, a famous preacher who does not preach repentance, you could all probably have one that comes to mind, maybe not the same one, because uh, unfortunately, because unfortunately there are many, but I'm going to just read to you two quotes from one in our own city, Joel Osteen. This is from a CBS uh, interview. It was Easter Sunday in 2016. That's a good opportunity. There's going to be lots of people interested. What's Easter about? What's this about? This is on the news, and, and he's... Uh, going to be speaking about Christ. So he's going to give them this gospel here. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, the interviewer asked, you have been criticized for church light for a cotton candy message. Do you feel like you're cheating people by not telling them about the hell part or repentance part? Osteen replied, no, I really don't because it's a different approach. Most people are already beaten down by life. They already feel bad enough, guilty enough. They, they don't raise their children the way they should. We can all find reasons. So I want them to come to Lakewood in our meetings and be lifted up. You know, I may not be perfect, but I'm moving forward. I'm doing better. And I think that motives, the better that motivates you to do better. So here he has the opportunity to talk about repentance, and he says, well, it's just a different emphasis. I don't want to emphasize that sort of thing. And yet, what is Christ's emphasis from beginning to end? It is repentance. And some of you may even think, well, that's not that bad of a quote. I'm going to read you just one more. This is from, and, and maybe you think, well, it was, that was gotcha journalism. You know, he was on the hot seat, and he, did, he wanted to sound appealing to people. So this is from one of his daily devotionals. Back in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, they hid. In the cool of the day, God came to them and said, Adam and Eve, where are you? They said, God, we are hiding because we are naked. I love the way God answered them. He said, Adam and Eve, who told you you were naked? In other words, who told you that there was something wrong with you? And God immediately knew the enemy had been talking to them. God is saying to you today, who told you that you don't have what it takes to succeed? Who told you that you don't, that the great, the best grades you could make in school were C's rather than A's? Who told you that you were not attractive enough? Who told you that your marriage is not going to last? Who told you something was wrong with you? These are lies from the enemy. You need to reject them and those ideas and discover what God says about you. Uh, God, no good thing will I behold from you uprightly. When you delight yourself in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. You can do all things in Christ. The potential is inside you. It doesn't change you because you don't believe or just because you've been through something negative in your past. It has been deposited in you permanently by the creator of the universe. So there you have it. What's inside you is good. It's positive. It's great. And God, you see this message is so twisted. Now, he is encouraging. I will not deny that. He says things. When you finish, you feel like you are encouraged. And yet, if you don't have the gospel of grace that you need to... What was the point of Adam and Eve falling? That they, they just need to see the goodness inside of them already? No, that was the fall. That was the sin. We must repent of our sins. This is the message of Christ. Joel Osteen has so many gifts. And if he would include the whole gospel, he could be used so mightily. We must have this same conviction. Don't you know, even in your conversations, when you are talking with people and evangelizing, 
There is the temptation not to mention the hard thing, to just say, yes, Jesus makes my life better. Don't you want some of that? Don't you want your life to be better? And not to mention the gospel. You feel that inclination. Jesus did not shy from this when he met the woman at the well, when he met sinner after sinner. He preached the gospel. Go and sin no more. Don't do this anymore. Believe in me. Oh, Christian, do not shrink back from God's word, from his commands, from the way he did it. Now, I know I picked on Joel Osteen, and that is easy. It is not him alone. In fact, some of you know of this study. It was a 2005 study by Christian sociologist Christian Smith. And he did uh, a survey of all the Christian youth. You know, they do their statistical thing where they call around and get a certain number. And they just interview and say, what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to have faith? And out of his study, this book that was called uh, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, this phrase came about, and perhaps you've heard it, moralistic therapeutic deism. That's where that phrase started. That was basically when they analyzed all the students' results. That's what the kids believed in, moralistic, therapeutic deism. What do we mean by that? Well, it's therapeutic. God is there to make you feel better. That's his purpose. He is your therapist in the sky. If you're feeling down, his purpose is to comfort you. It is moralistic. You are supposed to do good. So you do good. You live right. And God comforts you when you're sad. And deism, other than that, he's just up there. He's not really my life. I can live it however I please. That was kind of the general tenor of what these students believed. And these were students across evangelicalism in main, mainline churches and evangelical churches and Presbyterian churches and Baptist churches. That was the faith of these. And when we look at results of how many kids fall away from the church, is it any surprise That is not the gospel that these students were articulating. I'll just read on page 163. This is a quote when he's talking about what the students believed. He said, religion, what is religion? What is Christianity about? It's about providing uh, therapeutic benefits to its adherents as opposed to being on things like repentance from sin, of keeping the Sabbath, of living like a servant of a sovereign divine, of steadfastly saying prayers, of, of building character through suffering. None of that other stuff was mentioned. Just this, he wants us to feel better and do better. Michael Horton, who's a professor at uh, Westminster Theological Seminary, California, Here's his quote when he analyzes this, and he's done a lot with that phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. He says, what the diet in our churches is, is something completely different from Christ and him crucified. It's me and me improved. And that is not the gospel. It is Christ crucified. That is to be our focus and our faith. He demands things of you. He is your Savior. We're about to see as we move into the next section about ministry manpower. What do the disciples do when he calls them? They follow Christ. He's the lead character, not you. You are not the starring character in your story. You are a supporting character in the gospel of the kingdom, in Christ the King. You are serving him in the way he's called you. This is not about your happiness. Happiness is not the main goal. Of course, God wants the best for you. And yet in his discipline, sometimes he must make you unhappy in order to make you ultimately happy and blessed. 
This is the Christ we serve. We love to follow him wherever it takes, whether through joy and happiness or through discomfort and pain. We follow our Savior where he leads. Now in the next section, ministry manpower. So Christ is speaking this messianic message. Who is going to help? What is he going to do? He needs to build his manpower. And what does he do in verses 18 and 19 and 21? We see the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John. Now, we know from uh, John 140 that this was not the first time these gentlemen had seen Christ. It, it seems like it in this uh, text that he just showed up, said, follow me, and they just dropped and followed. But they had known of him before. John 140 says that they had heard John the Baptist speak already about this king that was coming, and they were already in the mode. They're already believing in this sort of thing. And so Christ comes, the one that John was pointing to, and they say, oh, yes, we will follow. So let's, let's analyze this. Who is he calling? Who are these people? They are ordinary fishermen. These aren't kings. You can, you, some of you know kings of ancient Rome. You can come up with names of, of powerful people in the old times. Can you name one fisherman in the first century besides these? These are not powerful, famous people. These are normal, everyday fishermen. He calls the normal. You might in your brain think, well, I'm not a so-and-so or a this, and I don't have the talents or skills that these other people have, so I'll just be content to not impact the kingdom that much. Oh, Christian, God has some role for you to play, and you need to follow and play that role. It matters not how important you are in the world of the, in the eyes of the world. And we see here, uh, that uh, these, that in First uh, Corinthians, for example, one twenty six through twenty nine, God loves to choose the foolish things to shame the things that are wise. He loves to pick the underdog. And so, if you are an underdog, good. Now, if you're in here and you are famous and and wealthy and everything's going well, then maybe he may not use you until he humbles you. I don't know. Of course, he can use anybody. He can use the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. He can use anybody he pleases. So when is he calling them? On Sunday at church, right? No, he's calling them right in the middle of their work. Sometimes we like to compartmentalize our, our life. Here's my school life, and here's my church life. Here's my work life, here's my family life, here's my church life. And Christ has none of it. He will come in your work, he will come in your family, he will come whenever. There is no religious time and non-religious time. Christ comes when he wills, and he has demands. He says, leave that and come with me. Who is this that makes these demands? What right does he have to demand so much? Well, he's your savior. He's your God. He's the creator of the universe. He can demand anything he likes of you and you must obey. It is a joy and a privilege to obey, but even if it weren't, you must obey regardless. Jesus does not demand the same thing of everybody. He doesn't call everybody like he did the rich young ruler to give up all of the wealth. He doesn't call everybody to leave their jobs like he called these disciples. But you had better be willing to say whatever he does call me to, I will submit. If he did, dear Christian, if he did call you tonight to quit your job and go do missions across the world, would you? Or is that just a little too much? 
Not that he is going to call you to it, but that is the attitude we must have. If he does call Christ, wherever you call, I will follow. That is the intent of our hearts. That is this Savior that we serve. We will serve our high king. Notice uh, verse 20 and 22. How do they respond? Immediately they follow him. You can imagine what kind of a man Christ is, that he can show up to roughnecks, these guys who are tough fishermen, and command them to do something, and they do it. He is sovereign. He's a leader of men. He is the king. If he says do, you must do. Now, I wonder how many nominal Christians you can think of who have not followed Christ anywhere. I pray it's not anyone in this room Who would say, yeah, let me think, how have I been following Christ? Am I doing his, what he desires, his desires over mine? Or is everything in my life the way I want it to be? My comforts. Oh, Christian, I pray that is not the case. Do not be one of these who says, yes, I I accept Christ. And yet when Christ started walking that way, they just walked the other direction. Said, yeah, he's, that's my savior. He's walking off over there. Yeah, he. And and just turn and never give another thought to it. That is not following Christ. Now, back, back to verse 19. What does he say? Follow me. And what? I will make you fishers of men. So this is Jesus' analogy. This is his analogy. So I'm going to use his analogy. I'm not going to, I'm trying not to take it too far, but he's talking about fishing. This is what those gentlemen were doing. How many of you have been fishing? We have a church fishing trip that's coming up. Uh, Hopefully you'll get to go and enjoy it. Do you always catch what you intend to catch on fishing trips? No, sometimes you come back empty-handed and that's embarrassing, right? You feel, ugh. Maybe I'm not so good. It takes patience to fish. I don't like fishing. I, I don't have patience to fish. I think it's boring for these reasons. I don't like the success rate, and I don't like how much patience it takes. And yet, this is the analogy for what we're called to do with people. I don't fish because I don't enjoy it. I wonder how many of you are like, you know what? I don't like fishing for men. I don't like telling the gospel. I don't like the success rate. And I don't like the patience that it takes for me to have to keep doing it and get rejected. I don't like having to put the line down in the water and have nothing bite. I don't like that. So I'm not going to do it. Well, remember that thing we just talked about, about when Christ says, do, you do. When he says, follow, you follow. Oh, Christian, please be earnest in your fishing. When's the last time you went man fishing for souls? Oh, Christian, do it this week, this evening. When you come to somebody across your path, put the line in the water. It is up to God whether or not the fish bite. But you are told to go fishing. Yes, it's going to create uncomfortable and awkward situations at times. You're not promised success all the time, but you are told, go fishing. And so, Christian, go fishing. Now, we move very quickly to the last section, which is the messianic or the missional miracles. We have the messianic message. We have the, uh, the 
Now I forgot my second point. What was the second one? <laughs> the double alliteration is too much for my simple brain. Uh, we're on the manpower, right? We just finished that one, and now we are doing the missional miracles. What is the point of Christ doing all these miracles? Well, one, let's just look at our Savior. He is reversing the curse that took place in Genesis 3. He is, remember what the text from the Old Testament said, he is bringing light. He is the light and the life of men. He is bringing, sending back the kingdom of darkness and bringing light. And what is he doing here? He's healing physical disease. He is bringing spiritually dead people to life. He is, this is your Messiah. This is he, the loving God who came down to earth to save and seek the lost, to heal We will have many occurrences of healings later on in this book, and so we'll go into what about healings today and things like that as we approach uh, texts that deal with it more concretely. But just for now, I want to quote to you John 2, 11 and 5, 36, where it talks about what's the purpose of Jesus doing these miracles. In 2, 11, it says it is manifesting his glory. And in 536, it says, for the works that the father has given to me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness to me that the father has sent me. So they are testifying to his message. The miracles are not the point. And yet, what does it say here? His popularity and fame spread primarily because of the miracles And yet those miracles are to point to his message, repent and believe the gospel. And so occasionally you'll see this kind of this pattern. He will do things that gathers a crowd. And then what's going to happen eventually to that crowd each time a crowd gathers. It might stay for a while, but then after a while they hear what he's having to say over and over again. And then eventually they wander off. Right. You you know, the apostles, the disciples will say to him sometimes, that's a hard teaching. Who can accept that? And people turn and, and walk away because it's so hard. His teaching, he, ha- he is God. This one who can do these miracles can teach whatever he likes and we accept it. Now, even the things that seem like they're hard things to accept are really the right things and beautiful things and glorious things when we understand them. But the point is these miracles are not the focus. They are to point to Christ himself, to his message. Do not get that mixed around. Now, as we uh, get close to our conclusion, I want to read to you, we've we've talked about this this man fishing that Christ has called all of us to, to which He has called all of us. Uh, the church sometimes loses its way. I'm going to read a story. This is uh, it was pr- printed in a now defunct Presbyterian journal magazine. It's called the Lighthouse Rescue Club. On a dangerous sea coast. Where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. It was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but a few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. And with no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. So many lives were saved by this little number 
And it became famous in that region because of its work. Some of those who were saved and others wanted to be associated with this station and give some of their time and money to support its work. New boats were added and new crews were trained and the little station grew. Some of the new members were unhappy with the crude building, the little hut. They felt the rescued needed a more comfortable place for their first refuge. The building was enlarged with nicer furniture, and the life-saving station became a popular gathering place, and it was redecorated beautifully and furnished with a sort of club atmosphere. Less of the members were now interested in going to sea on a life-saving mission, so they hired lifeboat crews to go and do that work. About this time, a large ship was shipwrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in boatloads of cold and wet and half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick. They were dirty and sick, and some of them had um, uh, smells and odors, and they spoke strange languages, and the beautiful new club was considerably messed up. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership because the members wanted to stop this activity that was bringing in such unpopular and unpleasant, and it was actually a hindrance to the normal pattern of the club. Club. Some members insisted that the life-saving purpose was the primary purpose and pointed out that they were called a life-saving station. But they were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives, they needed to go off and start their own group. This is a poignant story, especially from coming from a defunct Presbyterian magazine. I... Uh, watched uh, the proceedings of the Kirk of Scotland. You know, this is the, the founding church of Presbyterianism. Uh, the theology came from uh, the Bible, of course, and St. Augustine and all through the strings, but Calvin and Geneva and Scott Knox went and trained with him, and then he came back to Scotland, and he was a man-fisher. He prayed to God his famous prayer, Give me Scotland or I die. I'm willing to sacrifice everything for Scotland. I'll flee in persecution, but I will come back and preach the gospel. And he was successful. God granted his prayers. And Scotland was one of the most Christian nations there ever was. You remember that story we told about the little children that were catechized in Scotland. They all knew the answer to the prayer question. Well, just a few years ago, I was watching on, online the Kirk of Scotland General Assembly was voting on removing the Westminster Confession of Faith from its church constitution. For those of you that don't know, that's what it means to be a Presbyterian. That's the document that, that defines what Presbyterian theology was. And these ministers were saying, some of them, they were standing up in the public general assembly. One said, I've never even read it. I, I've, and when I was tested on it, the person said, I'm supposed to bring up the Westminster Confession. You see that book over there? That's it. Now I've brought it up. And then they continued. It is offensive that someone would not would be willing to stand up in front of others and say such anus things. They had to take an oath on the Bible to be ordained into the ministry. Do you accept this as your beliefs? And they've never even read it. I could make myself furious, so I need to stop on this. But the point here is, Christian, this has happened in our own denomination in years past. Don't lose the focus. 
Christ, your king, your sovereign, has come and he's marching. Don't be like the lighthouse club, losing your focus. We are to bring in sinners. God would not have one perish. He wants us to bring them in. Popular movies about epics, you know, this this hero figure that comes, they are only popular in our hearts because they echo the ultimate epic. What is the ultimate epic? This Christ, remember, Matthew 1, he is the Son of God and he's invading earth. He's becoming incarnate. He has a royal line. He's opposed by the king who tries to kill him. And he is greeted by wise men from foreign nations. And he comes and God blesses him with his Holy Spirit. He goes out and is tested by Satan in the wilderness. He is here spreading the message of life. He is healing the sick. This is the ultimate epic. You can imagine how heroic this one is. And he's gathering the manpower he needs to do it. And you here are part of that same strain. Oh, when you go out this week, don't just live a normal work week, a ho-hum work week. You are in this epic. Play your role, Christian Go fishing, Christian. Serve your king, Christian. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, how we want to serve you. Oh, it breaks our hearts to think of how many great churches have fallen. The work that has been done, undone. And yet we are so thankful that you are the sovereign king and you need no individual denomination, no individual church. Your church will march on. And we pray that we would be part of it, that we would be living and active as your body with you, the head, reaching out to others. Oh, give us a heart for missions, for evangelism, for sharing the gospel. Oh, cause us to follow you. Oh, give us a unified heart that seeks to worship you every day, every hour, every minute, with every breath. Give us blood earnest desire to serve our King. Oh, what a privilege, Lord. Help us to keep you on the throne and see ourselves as supporting actors. We cannot do it in our own strength, Lord. We know that. Give us your Holy Spirit blessing. Empower us to live out your gospel. Oh, how we thank you and we ask all these things by Christ's name and through his sacrifice for your glory. Amen.